and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, guys. And this week, we're speaking with Kiese Lehman about his new book of collected essays, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. And the backstory behind this book is really interesting, and we talk about it a bit in our interview, but it originally came out a number of years ago, and Kiese had to buy back his book from his publishers to re-release it. Yeah, and so we end up talking a lot about that process with him and kind of how it felt to kind of suddenly seem to lose ownership over his own creative products and then kind of take them back. And something that I thought was kind of interesting that I feel like a lot of writers don't really talk about is how it feels to have a book come out, just like emotion-wise, and how he talks about how he kind of felt like his editors were his friends and Mm -hmm. these people were looking out for him and how, what a rude awakening it was to figure out that like, actually, no, none of these people are your friends and you're kind of out there on your own. I am friends with all my writers. <laughs> Eric and Medea, do you, when you get contracts, how much do you read the fine print of what your rights are? Somebody's going to use this against me, but I don't read them at all. <laughs> what? And actually, I just don't really care. And actually that this recently got me into trouble because I wrote a freelance piece for a company that will remain nameless, <laughs> but who then stole the idea in the freelance piece and made a huge campaign out of it, a huge advertising campaign, as well as a Spike Jones movie. What? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and so I actually did have to go back to that contract and read it through and figure out what my rights were and whether I could sue them or not. So that's a story. There you go. Stay tuned. Are you gonna? Are you <laughs> yeah. gonna sue them? No, I don't. I, in the end, I think it's not worth my mm. my time and effort. But yeah. there, there was relevant information in the contract that made the suit uh, more difficult for me. So they they had planned it out. Uh, I am the 180 degree opposite of you. I 100% when it's my own contracts, I 100% read through every single line and like highlight things. I'm also very lucky to have um, lawyers in the family who I can be like, what is this? How does this line read to you? And I just, you know, this girl loves marking up the text, you know, be like, oh, let's get rid of that line. I want to add this in. I got this carve out. Because, you know, whenever you sign production contracts, you know, there's lots of things about crazy stuff that like other people that don't work in that area don't wouldn't even think about, which is like, if you take notes while you're working on a show for something else, it's like they could own the rights to that. So it's like kind of managing your own creative output on the side is like a huge thing. And that's like, def- but that's only because of friends in the industry have told me to look out for that stuff. Cause I would never have even thought of that being a thing that it's like, Oh yeah, here's my idea for the great American novel. Psych. You've been on the LARB radio hour and now we own it. So that kind of thing. Not that LARB radio hour would ever do that. I don't actually even know what my contract is. I don't know if show. we ever signed I don't think there is one. Yeah. No. If you have a great idea for a novel, I'll definitely try to take it if I can. Spoiler alert, I don't. Um, but, <laughs> but here's hoping one day. Okay, well. And I'll give it to you, Kate. Wow. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. Well, I, I think we should just listen to Kiese and, and for someone who, who has lots of great ideas. Let's do it. We're joined today by Casey Lehman. He is a writer from Jackson, Mississippi. He's also the acclaimed author of the novel Long Division, as well as the award-winning and best-selling book Heavy, an American memoir. Casey is also a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and Oxford American. He has written for the New York Times, Esquire, the Paris Review, NPR, and many, many other esteemed magazines and journals. He is the Hubert H. McAlexander Chair of English at the University of Mississippi and the recipient of the 2020-2021 Radcliffe Fellowship at Harvard. Casey's joining us today to discuss the newly reissued collection of essays, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. The collection was originally published in 2013, but Kiese bought back the rights to the book, revised and re-edited, and has released it again on his own terms. The essays in the collection range from a discussion of culture, art, and sports to more intimate discussions of race, family, and national politics. Kiese, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for the work you all do, too. I appreciate it. I'd like to talk about the story behind you buying back this collection and how this current publication differs from the one in 2013. What were some of the circumstances that led you to want to republish this book? Well, I sold the first book for $1,000. And I sold the first book for $1,000 because New York Publishing, for the most part, told me that they didn't believe in that book or my novel, Long Division. And I had a book deal with one of the majors. And ultimately, you know, we went back and forth for two or three years and they told me to take the racial politics out of the book. So I gave all the advance back and then I was just out there, you know, and Jasmine Ward, who is my friend and just, I think, the most incredible writer in the world, published her first book with this independent out of Illinois. And so I sent that same publisher three books on a Thursday or something, I think, or maybe like a Friday or Monday. They reached back out and said, yeah, we want to publish. And I was just sort of I just wanted to get to heavy and I was sort of like desperate to get those books out. And so, you know, we put both of those books out. They did well, much better than people or anybody thought, made the publisher a good amount of money, helped get them some critical acclaim. And I went back to them maybe two or three years after the initial publishing and asked if I could add some essays to the book because I'd written some stuff that I wanted to add. And the answer was no. And then I was like, well, look, I want my books back. Like you've made enough money. You know, we sold like 40, 50,000 at that point. And the dude was like, yeah, you can have your books back if you make me an offer. <laughs> and I was just so, I don't know, wow. man, my feelings, I was mad, but my feelings were just so hurt. And then I was just like, the worst part of it all was that, and it's what I write about in the author's note, is that like, there was a part of me that I don't want to admit, like thought that the dude was a friend because he thought there was some value in my art. And I just think that's so true for so many people I know, like when you get constantly told no or these flimsy yeses when somebody's like yes like i want to collaborate with you a lot of times like you know especially like writers who hadn't been published before a lot of times we think those people are friends and having to buy back a book that i sold for a thousand dollars and that i helped make somebody a lots and lots of money hurt my feelings and it was sort of shameful but i just wanted my books back because this pandemic i think has shown everybody that like death for us or people we know is a lot closer than we think and I think that the book outlived me. And it's just a version of that book that I wanted in the world. And I just also didn't want that publisher's or that person's name affiliated with my book anymore after all that happened. So that's a long-winded way of getting 
to how I got the book back. And there were three essays that I didn't like. You know what I'm saying? I never liked those essays in the first place. And those were the Kanye West essay on Burning Mac, Tupac, and Michael Jackson. And then there was sort of like speculative fictive essay on Mitt Romney and Barack Obama. And those were just sort of like fun, playful things I put in there to break up some of the hard stuff, but also put that in there because I didn't have anything else. And once I wrote like 40, 50 more essays, I was like, I want to put the essays that I actually want in the collection and I want to resequence the collection. And if the dude would have just said, yes, let's do, you know, I would have been like, okay, let's do it. You know, that would have been a collaboration. But when he was like, nah, you can't resequence, you can't add or subtract. And matter of fact, if you want the book back, you got to pay me. Then I was like, all right, let's, I got to re-strategize right here. One of the things that I think comes up, and you actually write about your Struggles is, I think, maybe a too pat a way of putting it, but like your struggles in publishing. And as you talk about this, which, as you mentioned, you use in the author's note about the kind of thinking that these people were your friends and that sort of stuff, just because there is, like you said, after so many years of struggling and being told no, you get a yes and it feels like a love affair. But I think what you like confront so powerfully, both in that author's note, but also one of the essays in this collection, you are the second person, you really confront kind of how the publishing industry is an industry, right? And has turned you and your work into an object. And one of the things that your editor, who you've, I think, nicknamed Brandon Farley, says everything hinges for him on whether or not you're a quote-unquote real black writer. So can you both talk about what that experience was like kind of suddenly feeling a commodity, which has its own historical trajectory, especially in the United States, but also what you think he means by a real black writer and what that term means to you. I think it's complicated, fam, because so many of us are begging these people to commodify us, you know, like, please commodify. I think Americanness is just filled with like these contests where we beg people who we know are going to like absolutely destroy us or absolutely consume us to pick us. You know, like, pick me. I want to be your rag doll. And for me, it was like, I thought I understood, like, the business, but I mean, I obviously didn't. And one of the things that just hurt was, like, you just put so much of your being into not just your writing, but being read by people. Because I think people, I think we conflate those two. And, like, I knew I was doing some writing. Like, I knew that my writing would be read one day. I just didn't think I would ever be alive when it was read because, you know, I read and write for a living. I knew the stuff that I was writing could land with particular audiences. I was writing on my blog and stuff like everybody was back then. And it was just like, all right, I give up on the industry, but I'm still going to keep writing and creating because I know one day this work will be read. And when somebody comes along and says, I actually want a team with you slash I think I can make money off of you. You know what I mean? Like, because we're so trade by capitalism, we like jump and we're like, word, like you think you can use me to make some money for yourself? Like, use me up, you know? But then when it starts happening and you realize and the world starts to look at your skill or your work or your talent with the kind of reverence, sometimes you're like, wait a minute, hold up, fam. Like, you bought this shit for a thousand dollars. Like, that's a fucking Peloton. You know what I'm saying? Like, I literally gave you a pretty good essay collection off the rip. And I'm trying to make it better so you might even make more money and you're so in control that you want to tell me no. And when I just sat back, I was just like, why am I even collaborating with this brother? Like, this is not someone I would collaborate with. Like, we don't share artistic visions. We don't have the same sort of like zeal. 
we don't have the same sort of integrity for sure, because I would never do that to somebody else. And then you're just like, oh, I just got caught up in a bad deal, you know? And so then when I got my money up, you know, sad, but you know, I had to pay 50 G's to get out, but that was way lower than what the dude initially wanted us to pay. You know, he wanted us to pay up like way up in the six figures to get my books back. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to tell yeah. you? Yeah. It's just complicated, but I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but that's what it felt like, fam. And then I just got angry, but really that anger was just rooted in a shamefulness that I wanted to let this dude sell me. I wanted to be sold by this dude, but just nicely. And then when he yeah. didn't tell me nicely, I was like, oh, okay, well, now I got to do some work to get the shit out of your hands. But, like, I should have never done the deal in the first place. I mean, and that's not his fault. And, you know, I did it. I did the deal. But when I asked to get out of it, fam, like, don't charge me $200,000. Like, that's not the look. What do you think this kind of category that your pseudonymed publisher or editor kind of uses as a quote-unquote real black writer. What does that mean? And to, you know, as we're talking about kind of commodification, that seems like another point of commodification. What do you think that means and what do you hope that maybe that could mean for you? <laughs> I mean, fam, like I try not to even talk about all of the ways that those publishing people, because again, I did have to give that editor a pseudonym, but the fact of the matter is like, this editor was one of the few editors in New York who said yes. Like they gave me, and they conned me out of some money, right? Like I had a $20,000 deal somewhere else. They were like, we can give you 20000 for one book. I had a $20,000 for two book. I got out of the two book deal. And then when it came time to get the 20000 they were like, oh, sorry, we can only give you 10. So I'm already out of 10 Gs, at least, you know, when yeah. I signed with this person. They, some of those editorial people in New York wanted me to move the book from Mississippi to New York. They wanted me to change the narration from a black boy, multiple black boy narrators in Long Division to a white girl narrator from upstate New York in Long Division. And so like they had this idea of selling like the novelty of a black boy from Mississippi who could write like these white girl upstate New York in the woods type stories. So they, they had an idea of the commodity they wanted to sell, but that commodity wasn't my literature. It wasn't like yeah. my story. It wasn't my graphs. It wasn't my vision at all. And so and it also was 2011, 2012, this 2000, probably nine to 2012 it was a different era. The whole thing was like essay collections don't sell. Nobody wants to read essays and nobody wants to read metafiction. And of course, in 2020, fucking all everybody wants to read are fucking essays and metafiction. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me ask the kind of pushback you were getting from this editor and basically de-emphasizing and just completely nonsensical trying to take out the racial commentary in the book, right? Like changing the race of the narrator, all these things. From that time, 2012, do you see the publishing industry having changed? I mean, in the gap between when this book was first published and the current moment. Yeah. Do you think things we, have changed a lot or we, you, is the landscape similar? We changed it. You know, when I say we, I'm saying all of millions of readers out here who wanted to read different things. And a lot of us who create, who are readers as well, who also like write into the internet. Like the internet is part of what changed publishing, whether it was a few months ago, like us going on saying publishing paid me. But real talk, it was like lots and lots of like writers of color, particularly black writers, lots of black women writers who were writing on blogs and stuff and getting all of this attraction and attention. And then I think New York media and New York publishing followed. Like that's what happened with me. You know, like I had to push those two books out, pretty much sell them out in my trunk, show people that I could move books. And then when Heavy came up, almost every publisher in New York wanted to sign me. And it wasn't because I got better as a writer because Heavy wasn't even written and it was just an idea. It was the fact that they saw 
that I could use the internet primarily to gain an audience. I think the same thing happened to Damon Young. I think the same thing happened to mm-hmm. Sam Irby. I think the same thing happened to ta to a different degree. You know, he was doing his blog initially. Adam Sora, who also, Tressie McCottom. Like, these are all folks who were writing on these independently owned websites that we were putting material out and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people started to come. And then I think the industry followed. And I think that is some of what you're seeing now with like, there are a lot more openings and the wonderful few Black folks that I know in publishing pushed and pushed and pushed, you know, whether it's Lisa Lucas or Chris Jackson, you know, or Tanya McKinnon as an agent. So I just think all of these folks just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and made this thing kind of open up. But it's, you know, it's definitely not as open as it needs to be, but it's definitely much more open than it was when we first started trying to get in it. So I want to get to some of the essays in the collection and coming back to them all these years later. The first one, though, that you now have is a more recent one, and it's about the pandemic. And I just wanted to ask you about, you know, I I think something that's rare is writers talking about how you've been talking about their feelings around something. You're very candid, like this hurt. This hurt me. This was emotionally difficult because I thought these people were my friends. What has the past couple of months, I mean, the past year almost, I guess, but been like for you? Oh, wow. That's a... Sorry. That's a brilliant, big question. I mean, it's been, it's been like super, super terrifying. It's also a period where I, like, I felt the most of what people conventionally call hope and love and commitment to like a larger movement for freedom and liberation. Like I felt that more in these last eight months than I've ever felt in my entire life. But then like, you know, the dude, you know, he just got 70-something million votes. And we couldn't dare beat him with, like, a middle-aged, like, thoughtful or even an old-ass woman, right? Like, you know, yeah. couldn't put an old-ass woman up against an <laughs> old-ass fucking devil. Like, we had to get this old-ass man to get 80 million votes. You know, and we're supposed to be happy. And we are happy. Like, we are happy that we, quote-unquote, won, <laughs> given our options. But, fam, this is not what America says it is. And that shouldn't be like, wow, but it's just, it's not like we're terrible. Like we are in a terrible way. We are in a terrible fucking way. And I don't know what more to say about it. You know, like (laughs) it feels like shit. It doesn't feel good. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Kese Lehman about his new book, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Sarah Shwenyan Bynum on the line with us today. Her new book is called Likes, and she is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Sarah, what book are you going to recommend? I just finished reading a novel called Theory by Dion Brand, and the title might sound dry and abstract, uh, but the novel itself is funny and sexual and quick-witted and irreverent and, and also at the same time just so 
deliciously written. Um, so this is my uh, enthusiastic recommendation. It is the story of an academic who is uh, been trying to finish a very ambitious PhD dissertation for years and years. Sounds so familiar. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. A little close to home, Sarah, but yes, go on. (laughs) Uh, And the novel tells the story of the three love affairs that occur over the course of the writing of the dissertation and the ways in which the lovers both prevent and contribute to uh, the growth and the completion or the incompletion of the dissertation. And I just delighted in this book. And going back to our conversation earlier, one of the things I loved about it was that the narrator is a first-person narrator, but is not named, unnamed, ungendered, race and nationality are not specified. And it just creates this very wonderful, generative reading experience not to be able to have those sort of markers to hang on to or markers to be burdened by, you know, in terms of our our readerly assumptions, but simply to enter into this tale of love and sex and ideas without those assumptions um, sort of weighing us down. So so that's my recommendation. She's a Canadian. Now now having... Um, sort of done away with all of those um, categories. I'm like, well, let me tell you which categories the author belongs to. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe I should should retract that. Um, we can have but, that with just discover. Yes, yes. But but I did really uh, delight in this book. It was this really pleasurable, really provocative read. It sounds really wonderful. Will you tell us the title again and the author? Yes, it's called Theory, and the author is Dion Brand. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting the suggestion. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Kiese Lehman, author of How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. I wanted to ask you about, you know, agreeing with everything you say and then at the same time being in Mississippi this summer with them, um, you know, deciding to revoke the flag, the state flag, not to fly it anymore, what that felt like. Yeah, you know, again, a lot of us worked on that. And I think we we have to give like what I call like the organic sort of like activist communities in Mississippi lots of credit because they pushed and they've been pushing and I moved back five years ago. And so we were pushing. And the fact of the matter is, were it not for the NCAA saying we're going to take our money out of the state, the SEC saying we're going to take our money out of the state. And ultimately the Baptists, the National Baptists saying we're going to take our money out if y'all don't 
change, you know, take the Confederate battle emblem off your flag. Like that's what actually changed it. And again, pressure is great. And I think our communities help make it happen. But it's also, you know, on the ballot, you know, we, where people could vote for, uh, we were voting for a senator and, you know, we had all these referendums, medical marijuana. So on one hand, like Mississippi just voted to approve medical marijuana, which is great. Mississippi just voted to take the, you know, voted for a different flag as a magnolia on our flag instead of like the Confederate battle emblem. But at the same time, we like overwhelmingly elected a senator who said defiantly, you know, if you invite me to a public hanging, I'd be on the front row. So yeah, like there's, you know, symbolic victories and real victories, but also, you know, like I'm from the state of that is like the king of clapback, you know, like any sort of movement supposedly progress forward. They're going to try to come back hard with like three or four steps backwards. And I think we got it all at the same time. You know, we went forward and we got knocked back at the same time. Usually it takes a few more years in between, but I think it just happened all at the same time. Kiese, can you can you talk a little bit about how, I mean, we talked a, a little bit about the pandemic, which shapes the collection in some of the essays, and as as well as kind of the the other cataclysm, right, which as you've been alluding to was the Trump presidency, which is almost done, but obviously so much more damage to recover from and things that we need to, to do to make this nation better. But can you talk about what it was like revising? Because this, this collection originally came out in 2013. And just what was it like to go back? Whenever we go back to our writing, right, it always feels like time travel. But can you talk about what it was like revising these essays or what new pressures you were bringing to the work as you revised in the wake of these two cataclysms, a pandemic and a kind of truly awful presidency? You know, I can I can just talk about two things particularly. Um, sure. You know, some of the essays that were in the initial version are in there, but all of the essays have been tinkered with or changed in some way. And something I wanted to do maybe, you know, actually immediately after the book was out was like go back in there and sort of address the times that I doubled down on terror. Like there's, you know, there's an essay where I talk about, you know, police officers saying they saw me throw crack out of a window. Uh, I'm at Lilith Fair. They throw me in the back of a police car. I look over at an in initial version. I look over at this field. I talk about wanting to run back to Mississippi. I'm in Pennsylvania. And what I didn't talk about was the fact that, like, the women that I was in the car with, I'm, I'm in the back of the car watching them get touched on by the police officers, watching them just talk to them and, you know, handle them in ways they would never touch or, quote, unquote, handle me. But in the first version, like, I didn't have the skill or the will to talk about that, right? Because I wanted the reader to just focus on, like, you know, the, the the kinds of white supremacy and anti-blackness that my, like, black masculine body were feeling. And, and I didn't trust myself to also look at, like, while I'm feeling this, I'm looking at another sort of sort of violation happen. So I went back and I changed that scene. Another example is, you know, when I got kicked out of school, my partner and I got kicked out of school in the first version, I didn't talk at all about, like, her really getting tossed to the side and all of that stuff that happened with the media. They just made it like the endangered black man is trying to, you know, white man going, white school going up against this endangered black man. So, you know, they're just, for me, revision is often about rhythm and sound and making stuff sound to change like the, the trajectory of it. But it's also about understanding the way, like <laughs> the things we write can be filled with terror unless we make them not terrifying. You know what I'm saying? Unless we go back in there and make and, and to make them not terrifying, we have to also make us. So I just, there's things about myself that changed. 
And also, like, the one of the reasons I took out the Kanye piece is because I couldn't stand behind the things I said about Kanye West anymore. You know what I'm saying? And so, and mm. same thing with Michael Jackson. And so, you know, I think culture sometimes dictates, like, a different take on the art we create. And if, and, and if it is ours, like, we sometimes should have the right to go back in there and shift it. You know, yeah. it's, it, it's a way you, you sort of break the notion of, like, capitalist product. But also, it's just, like, it's just art. And I want to fucking change my art. So I'm going to change it, you know? So I wanted to ask you about the title of the collection and and what you mean when you say the slow killing of yourself and others. You tie it very closely to your experience with your uncle, but what is it? What are you talking about for readers or listeners who who might not sort of intuit what you mean? Uh, yeah, I'm talking about uh, this desire that I had and still have to sort of take my legs out, to take my heart out, to hurt myself for lots of different reasons. And what I'm trying to show in that book is that, you know, we a lot of us don't live in these silos where we can hurt ourselves and not hurt other people. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of the damage and the carnage in this country is, you know, you know, like, I, I mean, Trump is a perfect example of someone who has, yes, like it seems to feed off of people's suffering but who also like seems to feed off of his own suffering, right? That man, that's a that's a suffering dude. Like, and I'm not just talking about like weight and shit like most people. I mean, I'm just like, you know, if you look, if you believe in people and you and you think eyes are like interesting, like there's something going on in that man's eyes and that man's being that is absolutely horrible and terrifying. And the problem is that, you know, he auditioned for a big section of this country, and a big section of this country was like, Yeah, like we want you. And he ended up hurting, you know hurting and help actually I think helping kill hundreds of thousands of people not just in this nation so I just think we do that I just don't want to do in that book what I'm, what I'm trying to say also is like I don't want to ask anything of the nation or the president or senators or governors that I don't ask them myself and one of the things I have to do is do what those people are not willing to do which is to say like I have a propensity to harm myself you know be it with like actions or substances or relationships and when I do that, I'm har- I'm harming other people. This is what's happening, in, in, I think, nationwide. And so one way I can try to ameliorate that is to slow it down and, and really walk into, like, a kind of, like, discursive or rhetorical healing without really using that word. So that book, to me, is about, like, looking at folks who, like, also have this tendency to be harmed and or harm themselves and other people. And let's say, like, you know, like this version, like, let's just walk back. Let's just walk back to our first works. Let's walk back to the beginning um, and let's do it together. Like, that's why there's so many voices in that book. You know, my mom and me, like, you know, Michael Denzel, Darnell, Kai, you know, like, there's just so many. My my uncle's, like, ghostly voice, my auntie's voice is so present. Um, DeAndre's voice is just all up in there. So I just wanted to get like all of these people and all of these voices like sort of singing like a a a, a hymn, and and that's what I that's what I tried to do. Kiese, I kind of you know maybe as we wrap up a little bit here, this your response there is like um, queuing off for me a, a term that arrives early in the book and kind of which gets picked up every once in a while throughout, which is radical friendship. So I want to ask you a little bit what you mean by the term radical friendship and the kind of world building that radical friendship entails. Yeah. Um, and then also, as you kind of consistently point out, right, so I'm not, you know, telling tales outside of school, but you talk about how you have, or you, by your own judgment, you've kind of consistently failed to be the, to engage in the kind of radical friendship 
that right. is held out as an as an ideal for you. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit about that and maybe even where you are with that today? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know I'm a better friend today than I was before I made these books, um, including Heavy. But I, I think one of the things I'm saying is that, like, friendship is also a site of, like, the sublime and, as we know, like, the absolutely destructive. And what I'm saying in that author's note, as you said, it's not just that this dude did me wrong and I was expecting more from a friend. It's like my actual friends were expecting more from me. And I was letting them down for lots of reasons, but partially because I invested all of my worth in whether or not I could get a book published slash whether or not I could get white person A to pick me, you know? And so I'm not blaming them for like my harming my friends or my not being the friend that I needed to be. But I'm, but I am saying that I did not handle sort of like being dismissed as, as as a shitty writer as well as I should have in my friendships. And these people, these are, and these people who often who were people who wanted to be radical friends, which means like they actually wanted to talk about like where they'd been and they wanted to also hear where I'd been. And, you know, this is not connected to the, to the book we're talking about today, but a lot of my friends wanted to talk about sexual violence and their experiences with it and, and asked me about my experiences with it. And, you know, I think that was like a, an offer of radical friendship. And I was so afraid I would just like, you know, turn my back and be like, nah, we, I ain't got nothing to say. Or I would ask them more questions, right? Like deflecting like the question from myself and, hitting it and, and, and and putting it back on them. So they had to do more work. And so I'm just saying that I've worked to a place where I can accept like loving, tender slash radical friendship when it comes. And I think I'm one of the luckiest things about me today is that the people that I collaborate on art the people, you know, Kathy Belden, who happens to be my editor, PJ, Mark, who happens to be my um, agent, like, those are, like, friends. Like, you know, we talk about, you know, <laughs> we talk about kidney stones and we talk about fucking, like, <laughs> stretch marks and, and we talk about, like, you know, like, shame and we talk about cowardice when I'm not writing about that shit. You know what I'm trying to say? And so I just think, like, if you can get anything from that book, it's like I'm just trying my best before I die to be the best friend slash like, like partner I can be. And also I just think if I'm, if I'm good at that, all the other stuff will come a little bit easier. The writing, the literary citizenship, all of that shit. But it starts like, you gotta be good at loving the people you say you love and you gotta be good at accepting the love of the people who say they love you if it's healthy love. And I haven't been good at that most of my life, but I think I'm better today. Yeah. There's a part in your book where you talk, you know, you're pretty candid about how how hard your mom was on you and how much she demanded of you and what she expected of you. But it also strikes me listening to you, you're pretty hard on yourself also. I mean, you are, you're expecting a lot from yourself as a friend, it seems like. But also, like, these are all really difficult things, really difficult things to achieve. I, I'm. It just strikes me that it's kind of funny that your mom seemed to expect so much. You seem to expect a lot more of yourself than even she did or does. Yeah, that's some that's some therapy level type comments right there. Um, <laughs> nah, for real. Like that's that's like that's like Sopranos type comment. Like I, I appreciate that, fam. Um, I never, I never. I mean, I do think you know, heavy was a lot of, about a lot of things. One of it was about like how often we become the parts of our parents that we most sort of kind of despise. And I think that's true. Like, I definitely, 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 often as a way of protecting myself, have far higher standards or 
unreachable standards for myself than anybody in the world has. And and part of that is because I I just I think I can just do much more than people think I can do. But also it's like I just don't want to be like left out there, exposed. Yeah. Something in the book, or I think even in the reference in the title is, you know, is shame. That self-harm often comes from shame in a country that would, you know, kill you, basically. It's like, it's much more expedient for you to hurt yourself or, you know, and and, um, that seemed to be, to me, especially in, in the title essay, you know, where it's you're get in trouble for all these things that would make anyone crazy. Like you get in trouble for calling out racism at your school and checking out a like not checking out a library book and right. um, where, you know, where what, what, what you've been confronted with is um, other you know uh, fraternity students, you know, dressing in blackface with afros. You know, it's like with that indignation, you know, how could you not want it? The society doesn't give you um, an option, you know. You're, right. So, but in particular, I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, just the relationship between self self harm and shame. Ooh, we y'all wait till the end to get. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we wait to get you comfortable, and then we're like, talk about shame, talk damn, about your mom. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I again, like you know, I. I think I'm like most Americans in, in that, like, when I feel shame, I harm myself and other people close to me. And like most Americans, I don't know how to talk about the roots of that shame. And I'm a writer, so I, like, unlike most Americans, I'm tasked with doing that, you know? And, you know, the thing about my mama is that she gave me the writerly practice to be able to do that kind of work. You know what I mean? And she also gave me a model that I run to and run away from, which ultimately takes me deeper into that, like, you know, sort of well of, like, where shame lives. Well, the thing about, this is to connect this to a question you asked earlier, is what I've been thinking about and feeling during this pandemic is, like, one way I have to conquer shame or, like, at least joust with shame is to just also admit that like like beautiful sentences and beautiful art and beautiful relationships like really make me feel good and so like shame makes me feel like the opposite of good like it is the worst feeling in the world for me and i just want to create art that allows people to talk and speak their shame into the world but i want them i want to create art that equally allows people to speak and talk like they're like twisted wonderful joy into the world like so that's why i've been trying to write so much more about pleasure lately and the politics of pleasure and, and just feeling good. And like, and, and, and what does, what does sincerely feeling good look like versus like sentimentally feeling good or performatively feeling good? Or, and what if you get off on a performance of feeling good? And what I'm talking about has little to do with like sensuality, but it has everything to do with sensuality at the same time. So for me, it's at the root, like shame and, and, and obliterating shame and knowing that those shards are going to sprinkle back on you is like what we have to do as artists in so many different forms and the shit, but the thing is, like, it's scary. Like, sometimes I don't want to fucking write and talk about shame, like, right now, but I need to. You know what I'm saying? And that's what I'm trying to do in that book. And and really, it's just like the echo. Like, I'm, I'm trying to encourage other people, particularly people who don't get written to historically, to kind of do similar work on their own terms. So I, ho- I hope that answers the question. Yeah. 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 It's a beautiful answer. Thank you so much, Kesey Lehman, for joining us. 
Thank you, Madea. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate y'all. And I really do like love the work y'all do. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Casey Lehman. His latest book is a reissue of a 2013 collection of essays. It has some new essays incorporated into it. It's called How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.